Open your Bibles to Philippians 1, verse 12 to 18 is where we're going to be this morning. Philippians 1, 12 to 18. A couple of weeks ago, we started a, ser- ser- a sermon series through the book of Philippians uh, that I'm calling The Christ-Centered Life. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I said that Christ-centeredness, as I want to kind of present it to you in this series, and also how I'm convinced the book of Philippians is presenting it, how Paul is presenting it in nearly every passage in this book, Christ-centeredness is is a life that is filled with the fruit of righteousness that can only come through a relationship with Jesus Christ. So what that means then is it's a life that is centered on the kingdom of heaven, that puts the kingdom of heaven and the values of the kingdom of heaven at the middle of everything that we do. And it sees all aspects of our life, everything that we do, in service to the mission that Jesus is on. That's really what Christ-centeredness is, is it's seeing every aspect of your life, everything that you do, whether it's, it's work or, or home life or, or, or married life or, or parent life or student life or retired life, whatever it is that you're doing, it's seeing everything as ultimately given in service to Jesus and the mission that he's on in this world. Really, when you think about it, the entire New Testament is essentially taking what we see in the Gospels of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and teaching us what that actually means for all of our lives. All of our lives in the church, all of our lives individually as Christians. What effect does the resurrection have on the life of Jesus' followers? What does it mean for the ways that we relate to one another? What about the ways that we relate to our government? What about our workplaces or our families? Two weeks ago, we saw Christ-centeredness and Christ-centered living is a work that God does. He begins it in His people and He brings it to completion In the day of Christ, Paul tells the Philippians that the work that God has begun in them, He will bring to completion on the day of Christ, before Christ returns, or when Christ returns. So the process of this life then, Paul is arguing, is one in which God brings the values of the kingdom and the affections of our own hearts in line with Christ and His kingdom. So God is bringing all of that about in you. He's increasing your affections for Christ. He's decreasing your affections for the world. He's increasing your value system to be in line with that of His kingdom. And He's decreasing the value system as it pertains to the world around you. This is Paul's desire for his church. Last week we saw that Christ-centered living is growing in love in knowledge, and in discernment, in growing in all three. It's the triumvirate of Christian value, which is just a three-temple. I got criticized because I didn't say what the definition of triumvirate was last week, so sorry, my apologies. It's just the three tentpoles of Christian virtue 
is essentially growing, abounding in love, maturing in knowledge and discernment, and applying all of those three. This is what God has begun in you and what He is bringing to fulfillment in the day of Christ, that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment. In our passage this morning, we're going to get a glimpse of Paul's own feelings about his imprisonment. Paul is in chains, and he's going to open up the curtain, as it were, and talk about how he feels about his situation. But when Paul begins to talk about his chains, I want you to pay attention, because I think we benefit in every way as he gives us a glimpse into what Christ-centeredness actually looks like, especially when the circumstances of life seem the most dire, coming from a man who is in prison. So with that in mind, let's look at our passage this morning, Philippians 1, 12-8. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to uh, advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the, uh, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we get a glimpse now of what Christ-centeredness looks like in our life. How we should think about our lives here and now. I pray that you would open your word before us and help us to learn. Teach us. Speak in place of me to a people ready to listen. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Philipp- <laughs> not Philippians, Philippians is one of the few letters that Paul has written from prison. It's generally referred to as one of the prison epistles because, in all likelihood, Paul wrote it while he was in prison. Uh, now, I want you to imagine just for a second what effect imprisonment would have on the churches and the people groups that. Paul has impacted. Just imagine what effect imprisonment actually has on any people group, for that matter. Frequently, it causes others of your ilk to flee out of fear for your own life. Think about it in relation to wars, as we're even watching on the news. A foreign army invades a country, and it causes many to abandon their home and their country, and their countrymen, and in some cases their families, and run out of fear for their own life. That's where we get to the book of Philippians, and we find out that it's not so here with the church at Philippi. Paul is in prison. He's been arrested for his faith, but the Philippians have not run for him from him. Paul is actually imprisoned for his faith, and that has caused the Philippians to revive their concern for him. 
They've actually increased their giving to Him. They've actually been more concerned for Him. And as we've seen in recent weeks, they've sent Him supplies. They've cared for Him. They've sent Him people. And additionally, back home in Philippi, they've been faithful partners of the Gospel. They've begun preaching the Word even more boldly. They've been faithful partners in continuing to spread the Gospel work around Philippi as Paul does abroad. But now, in our passage this morning, Paul is zooming out and he's considering what broader effect his imprisonment has had on those impacted by him in one way or another. And the first thing that we see in this passage is that the chains of the saints advance the gospel. The chains of the saints actually serve to advance the gospel. Look at verse 12 to 14. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul identifies first off there are two ways in which his chains have actually served to advance the gospel rather than hinder the gospel. The first way is that the, he says the whole imperial guard and all the rest have come to know that his imprisonment is for Christ. Now the imperial guard is something like 9,000 men. We might think of it, or the closest association we have is probably uh, the secret service the people that guard most closely to the president in our country, there they would guard Caesar, they would guard his whole household, they would guard everything close to the palace. Something like 9,000 men were in this imperial guard. Most understand Paul to be sharing the gospel with soldier after soldier. That's how most people read this passage, is that Paul is in prison and that whomever he is either chained to or whoever is overseeing his cell, Paul is there proclaiming the gospel to them, not keeping quiet about what he has seen or heard. In fact, I was always taught that a Roman soldier was standing next to him, chained to him day and night, and Paul was just yakking his ear off with the gospel. And to the point where the guy was like, can I get another duty, please? Now, we're not really told exactly that. Perhaps that's happening. That certainly fits in line with Paul's character, we know for sure. He's a ferocious gospel sharer. He doesn't seem to be intimidated by much. Chains don't seem to bother him at all. We even saw just a few weeks ago in Philippi, he and Silas are arrested, and they're in the cell singing and praying out loud. And so they don't seem to be phased at all by imprisonment. So the likelihood that as soon as he was imprisoned, he began a prison ministry is really high. And there's no doubt in my mind he's sharing with everyone. That said, I think it's also possible and far simpler to imagine that on the sheet of prisoners that they've got next to the Apostle Paul's name is written his charge, and that charge is proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ as the reason for his imprisonment. Next to old so-and-so is written murder. Next to what's-his-face? Insurrection. Those are Greek names, by the way. But next to Paul's name, preaching 
Jesus' resurrection. Now notice that it doesn't say that the imperial guard has come to understand the gospel. Only that they come to know that his imprisonment is for Christ. They at least know that much. And Paul says that this knowledge is an advance of the gospel. This knowledge is moving the football down the field. And you might ask, that seems pretty benign. Let's say Joe 9,000th soldier, lowest of the ranks, never even having met Paul, knows why he is in prison because he sees the list. How is him knowing why Paul is there in prison an advance of the gospel? Well, if you consider that the good news of Jesus Christ has not yet at this point made it to the highest reaches of government in Rome, the fact that Paul is in chains in the inner circle of the Roman government and the fact that all of the soldiers all the way up to the higher-ups have become aware that there is a group of people who preach about this man named Jesus, and because of that, they need to be in chains. At the very least, that is advancing the ball down the field. Now the gospel is becoming known in the inner circles inside Rome itself, or at least in the highest reaches of government. Presumably, they may even become or or be growing aware of even the smallest understanding of who Jesus is, even if it's on a surface level. Regardless of how this news is spreading, whether Paul is sharing with each and every prisoner, or whether they just know why he is in prison, or maybe a combination of the two, which I think is probably the most likely, Paul is, you see, rejoicing over his chains. He's celebrating the fact that he is in prison. Why? Because it has advanced the gospel even amongst pagans. And and that's the first thing that we see that his chains have benefited, is that it has advanced the gospel even amongst pagans. So that even tells us that if there is a day coming where persecution rises in this church, maybe, and we're hauled off to jail, what is the first thing that we do but begin a prison ministry? That's basically God's way of telling you, I'm moving you to prison ministry. But second, his chains advance the gospel because he says in verse 14 that it has emboldened the brothers in their teaching of the word without fear. I want you to just consider for a moment what impact Paul's imprisonment could have had on all those who knew him. Imagine what happens when Christianity becomes a capital offense and Paul is dragged into prison and they want to know not just who he is and what he's doing, but they also want to know all of his associates. Where have you gone? Who have you established friendships with? Isn't that right? Isn't that what we do now? When we uh, discover criminals, we investigate to see who they are associated with so we can find the entire nest of criminals? Well, if Christianity has now become a capital offense, or at least has become an imprisonable offense, then doesn't it stand to reason that they'll begin investigating all of the people associated with Paul and try to ferret out the gospel as it's had its reach throughout their cities? Maybe that would have caused the churches that he established to be driven underground. 
Probably rightfully so, where they move their meeting places. They move their meeting times. They don't tell people when and where they're meeting. They don't tell people what they're going to preach. They certainly don't publish podcasts or YouTube videos. Maybe they even meet at odd times. Or perhaps in the worst case scenario, the pastor of the church is tempted to alter the message so that it's more favorable to the community around him at least so that it doesn't draw the ire of the government. Our brothers and sisters in Canada are facing an ever-growing pressure. It's continuing to mount, no pun intended. The churches in China and Russia, maybe soon Ukraine, many European countries are facing everything from complete and outright annihilation of Christianity all the way to the classification of the Bible as hate speech. What's the response of the pastors in the pulpits of those nations? Some are no doubt going to be tempted to be silenced. And even in regards to Paul in this passage, he says, and most of the brothers, meaning that not all of the brothers certainly have, gone, have grown bold, but most of them have. Oddly enough, there is a supernatural boldness that comes when genuine believers encounter persecution. It seems counterintuitive. It seems like it shouldn't be this way. They should run. They shouldn't fight for the faith. But yet there seems to be, throughout the New Testament, this steady testifying of a boldness that increases amongst genuine followers of Christ when persecution rises. I want to remind you of the book of Acts. Jesus tells the apostles at the very beginning of the book in chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This forms something of an outline for the rest of the book of the Acts. Uh, Jesus tells them, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what happens. The Holy Spirit comes upon them first. Then th- they begin to preach the gospel in Jerusalem. Then it moves to Judea and Samaria. And then eventually it ends with Paul in Rome to the ends of the earth. So after Jesus then leaves the disciples, they're left wondering what is going to happen next and what, what should we do at which point they go to the upper room and presumably lock the door behind them and gather there together and pray. And at one point in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit rushes upon them. And once the Holy Spirit comes upon them, it leads Peter out into the assembly of all the thousands gathered before him. And in boldness, he begins to preach the gospel. And many come to salvation, so much so that even the chief priests, a chapter later, begin to look at these fishermen and recognize the boldness that they have is that of unlike any man should really have, especially of their education. But then the the chief priests take them in and threaten them, threaten to beat them more, threaten to imprison them, and tell them to be quiet. But they pray together after they are beaten in Acts 4, 29-31, and listen to what they pray. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they prayed, when they had prayed, the place in which they, had, they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit 
and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So in Jerusalem, they begin to preach, and a great many people come to salvation. They preach, thousands come to faith. But how is it that the gospel, where the fruit of the gospel is growing like wildfire, how is it that the gospel then begins to move from Jerusalem out to Judea and Samaria? Well, we find out in chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen, who had just been stoned, by the way, and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went in fear and said nothing. Wait, no, that's not what it says. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. The church in Acts is persecuted. And as it turns out, persecution in God's community acts a bit like slapping a horse on its rear end. And instead of causing it to lie down or go to sleep, it wakes it up. In fact, it might just startle it awake so much so that it begins to run with more force than it ever had before. So the fire that they thought they were quenching in Jerusalem, they only provided oxygen to the fire, which obviously causes it to spread. Brothers and sisters, persecution throughout time has ebbed and flowed for God's people. There's been times where it's been slow and times where it has been fast. Perhaps we are moving, maybe, in this country from it ebbing to it flowing. I think many of us can begin to sense that the winds of change are among us. Under no circumstances is it something that we should want or crave or pray for. And in all ways, we should pray against. But our prayer should not be for mere boldness. Shouldn't be for disrespect. It's not, an, it's not even an in-your-face kind of attitude. But it is, it is boldness of the kind that maintains Christian integrity while also increasing our fervor for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. When the winds of change turn against you, that is a time to buckle down and begin proclaiming all the more. Yet responding like Peter does in Acts 4, 19-20, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. It's not a prayer for mere endurance. It is a prayer for boldness. You understand what Peter is saying here? He is telling the authorities who are going to beat him, take a flying leap. But do you see how he does it? It's perhaps the nicest way anyone could ever possibly say that to an authority. He's maintaining Christian character while also increasing his boldness. You understand that's a hard line to walk. 
Not forsaking Christian character, but yet also increasing your boldness for the gospel. I'm not yet 40. And, no jokes, okay. The staff is younger than me. Now, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but if things keep going the way they are going, there is a very good chance that we are going to face these very circumstances before we die. Before we ever see retirement. Selfishly, I would ask for you to pray for us in this regard, because the first people that would be hauled off to jail would be this guy. Some of you may not even be around to see that day. And I would ask for you to pray that your prayers outlive you. Because there may be a time in the very near future where our boldness is going to be required of us. And what we're desperately going to need is for our boldness to actually grow because of the chains, not cower because of the chains. It appears actually throughout church history that this is precisely how the Lord has used persecution in the church. Has Satan had a design for persecution? He absolutely has. But it's as clear as Acts 1-8 from Jesus' own words at the beginning. You are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And he certainly knows how that's going to come about. So there is no doubt that in the midst of persecution, yes, Satan has an intention in that. But so does the Lord. And his intention is for his people to grow in fervor and in boldness. It appears that's how he used Paul's imprisonment in the lives of the churches that he planted. They didn't cower in fear, but they increased boldness. So may the persecution of our brothers and sisters do the same for us as we watch them hauled off in country after country. May it be a reminder to you, this is not a time to cower in fear. It's a time to speak with all boldness. Throughout history, the chains of the saints have served to advance the gospel. May it never be said of the church in America that the chains of the saints killed the church. Second, we're going to see that Christ-centeredness places gospel advance above self-interest. Christ-centeredness, by definition, places gospel advance above self-interest. Look at verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So Paul concedes that even though boldness has increased among the brothers. Not all are preaching Christ with the purest of intentions. Some have good motivations. Some have bad motivations. Some out of love. Others out of selfish motivation, selfish ambition. And he says, not sincerely. Now, there is some question that has come to mind here. The, the latter, obviously, preach Uh, 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 preach out of love and goodwill, and I think that's pretty obvious who that group is. 
It's people like the church at Philippi who have grown bolder and have served Paul all the more as he has gone into prison. They are self-sacrificing. They have an earnest desire to see the gospel advanced along with Paul. It's the other group that's kind of difficult to identify. Who is it that Paul is really talking about here? On the one hand, he, he says, well, and the first question we have is, are they Christian or not? On the one hand, he says, they are preaching Christ. And then he rejoices in their preaching at the end. So that would seem to say, yeah, they're Christians. They're Christian preachers who are preaching the gospel, albeit they are misguided. On the other hand, he says they preach out of selfish ambition and not sincerely. He says they just want to afflict him in his imprisonment. That would seem to suggest that these are not at all Christians and they have other motivations. So who is it that Paul is talking about here? It is possible, I think maybe probable, that these preachers are Christians of some sort yet they have not been on the best of terms with the apostle. They are immature in their faith and their preaching nonetheless. And upon hearing of his imprisonment, they use it as a means to add insult to injury. They use it as a means to criticize him. Perhaps they're overly critical about his approach in the face of persecution. Well, he really had it coming. Did you see what kind of things that he was saying to people? Obviously, he deserved to be in prison and deserved exactly what he got. We shouldn't respond that way. Perhaps they use it as evidence to demean his reputation or maybe even cast aspersions on his character, perhaps where they disagreed with him, maybe theologically. He thought he was invincible. He thought the Lord would protect him, that he was an apostle, that he could heal all these people, and they finally got him. But we sometimes find ourselves doing a very similar thing, I think. We might see a YouTube video like the one of the Christian pastor in Canada who's being hauled off to jail after he refused to shut down his church due to COVID restrictions. He was very adamant about it. He was very animated. He was very forceful, you might say. That caused Christians... On all, in all parts of the world to be on different sides, to be divided about how he handled the issue and whether or not he handled it appropriately. Some might even say, you know, he, he, was, he wasn't persecuted. That wasn't persecution that you're looking at there. He got what he deserved. Did you see what he did? Did you see what he said? These restrictions are normal and they, they were sensible orders that the government was handing down. Some said that. And others responded, didn't God also give an order that we shouldn't forsake the assembling of ourselves together? The point is that you can imagine scenarios like these where some might believe in Christ and yet castigate a brother because of his particular theology, maybe his style, things that he says, or even the ways he carries himself. In which case, Paul says, this person isn't preaching Christ sincerely, but he has ulterior motives, meaning that his ulterior motives is to puff himself up and denigrate Paul. But regardless of who exactly Paul has in mind here, whether Christian or not Christian, the point is that because of his chains, Paul's own name has taken a hit in the minds of many. Paul's name is being dragged through the mud. 
Paul is himself being thrown under the bus and his own character is being assassinated by people that would at the very least call themselves brothers and put themselves in front of a congregation of Christians. So then, how will he feel about the advance of the gospel as it's coming out of their mouths? The mouths of people who perceive themselves to be his enemies. He says in 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Do you understand what Paul is saying here? If it comes at my own expense, if it comes at the expense of my name, the name my Father gave me, if it comes by people that see themselves as my enemies, but if it is the legitimate good news of Christ that is proclaimed, then so be it. Even if it's at the expense of my own name. That's not to say there's not sadness for Paul. That's not to say there's not bitterness or pain or sorrow at the result of this. I'm sure there is. Later, he says he's tearful over people that are going to hell who make themselves an enemy of the cross of Christ. He calls them an enemy of the cross of Christ through tears, he says. So I'm sure he's even more sad about this fact. But the good news of Jesus Christ causes his own name to take a back seat to what is being proclaimed. So long as the gospel is truly advancing. Is it something we could say? Where you or somebody else might disagree or differ on two positions in Scripture? Can you celebrate the fact that even if it is the expense of your particular corner of theology that the gospel is advancing and for that I rejoice? Can your own name take a back seat to the gospel's advance even if it's with somebody that you don't particularly like? Grasping Paul's motivations I think is pivotal if we're going to understand what Christ-centeredness is all about. I want you to think really closely on what we are preaching in the good news of Jesus Christ. We're saying that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. That He was sent by God Himself to live perfectly as a man and die in the place of sinners like you and me. He suffered the punishment from God that we deserved on the cross. He was buried, and on the third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven, and He will return to judge the living and the dead. And by believing in Him, you can have eternal life. So repent from your sins and trust in Christ for forgiveness, and you will have eternal life. It's the essence of the good news of the gospel. If I was to give a 30-second elevator pitch to someone that I was talking to for only that long, it would be something like that. That's the gospel that we're preaching. But what has happened to Paul because of that message, is that he has now grasped how life-changing that news actually is. 
I want you to just stop for just a second and think about just three things that I just said. A man came to earth and claimed to be sent from God, God's own Son, God in the flesh. That's the first thing. Second, they killed him. That's important. Third, three days after they killed him, he rose again from the dead. So here's a man saying he was sent from God and that he could give you eternal life. They killed him and he rose from the dead. If I just told you those three things, and I didn't connect it to Jesus, I didn't connect it to any one person, I just said, this is what happened in history. And he rose from the dead. At that point, everything changes. If there's one person in history who has risen from the dead, never to be killed again, that should change or alter everything that I think about life. It tears the very fabric of the world that I live in. The fact that I thought I lived in a world where you die and that's it. And when Jesus came and rose again from the dead, life as I knew it was entirely different. The world that I thought I lived in is not the world that I actually live in. The world that I actually live in is one where it's possible for men to get up from the dead. That radically changes your thought about life. It radically changes because you thought death was not only inevitable, but it was ultimate. Now you have to realize that it may be inevitable, but it's not ultimate. It doesn't have the final say. So for Paul, for the apostles, for all the brothers who are watching him in prison, they grew bolder as preachers because of Paul's chains. The reason is because they realized all death could do is usher them into life. If death is inevitable and ultimate, meaning there's no coming back from it, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Who cares? YOLO. You only live once. Might as well make the most of it now. Get every drop of joy you can possibly drain out of this life. Live your best life now. But if you don't only live once, and the life to come is eternal, then maybe that life should inform this one. Yes? Amen, somebody. Maybe that life should take priority over this one. Maybe that's the reason that they grew bolder as preachers as they saw Paul enduring in faith through his imprisonment. That it testified further that this is true. Paul didn't cave when he got arrested. He proclaimed even stronger. So much so that all the people in the imperial guard came to know what his imprisonment was for. So then, suffering becomes worth it. Why does it become worth it? Because it ushers you into life. 
It hastens the day where you are with Christ. So suffering increases our boldness because of that. But this is the key to Christ-centeredness. It's letting the next life inform this one. Because if that life is eternal, it changes everything about the way that I live now. Enduring brothers and sisters who cast aspersions on your name is no problem if it means eternal life for you. But then do you see that he takes it just one click further? He's not just okay with those things if he gains eternal life. He's okay with those things because it means other people gain eternal life. You see that? His concern is for advancing the gospel. Not in his own life. Advancing the gospel in the culture around him. To other people, my chains mean more people are preaching more boldly. And if more people are preaching more boldly, that means more people are hearing the good news of eternal life. And I want everybody to have it. I want everybody to feel the joy that I have. That is Christ-centered living. When the advance of the gospel takes priority over everything else in your life, when others coming to know the grace and mercy that Christ has given to you, and that takes priority over everything else in your life, that's Christ-centeredness. So brothers and sisters, can you say that in your life, gospel advance takes priority over your personal time? There's an excuse that we often use so frequently in the church. I would, but I'm just so busy. You know that calendar that you've got on your phone? Those events, they didn't just appear there. You put them there. You clicked on the little thing and you typed. Or... For some of you old schoolers, you wrote it and put it on your refrigerator. Somebody didn't come along and just write those in there. They didn't obligate your time. You obligated your time. The question is, does gospel advance take priority over your personal time? Does gospel advance take priority over your personal time? freedom. In Christ, you are free. Free, free. What kind of free? Well, he tells the church at Corinth, you're free to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And they write back to him, well, we're free to eat meat sacrificed to idols. But here's what they're doing. They're taking the person next to him and they're beating him over the head with it. I'm free to eat meat sacrificed to idols, even though it causes a stumbling block for him. Which one is causing gospel advance? Swallowing your personal freedom and becoming a vegetarian if you need to so as not to offend? Does gospel advance take priority over your personal freedom? Does gospel advance take priority over your own reputation? Boy, isn't it intimidating when we get into our workplaces or in our schools or in our, and we just want people to think we're smart. I don't want people to think that I'm one of those dumb Christians that you read about on the, in the newspaper. You know, one of those Christians that believes 
the earth is young or that God created the world and everything in it or name it, just name it. Am I one of those kinds of people? I don't want you to think that I'm one of those kinds of people. Does the gospel advance take priority over your own reputation? Can you boldly proclaim the gospel in your workplace or at your school without equivocation? You don't truly believe that a man rose from the dead, do you? Do you really believe that a man was swallowed by a fish? Surely that's a parable. That's not even the craziest thing I believe. I believe somebody died and rose again. That's crazier. And if I live in that world, I can certainly live in a world where a man was swallowed by a fish. Is your desire for to be seen by others as intelligent taking priority over gospel advance? 